We're nearing the end of our sermon series in Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham. And for the next three weeks, as we close out the month of May, we're pretty much just wrapping up loose ends in the life of Abraham. The chapters 23, 24, and 25 are kind of the epilogue to Abraham's story as we transition from his generation to the next generation of the promised family. But before we get to the next generation, we must bring this generation to an end. And so chapter 23 tells us of Sarah's death. The text does not linger, though, on Sarah's suffering. It does not spend time on her last words. And it really does not give a lot of time to even the grief of her family. Because the primary focus of the chapter is on Abraham securing a burial site for his wife. So most of this chapter consists of an ancient real estate transaction. And though that certainly seems really boring on the surface, Abraham is looking beyond what his eyes can see to what he sees by faith in God and his promises. And so it is with that faith that we turn to Genesis chapter 23 to try to better understand what Abraham is doing here. So if you will, you can open up your Bibles or the bulletin where the sermon text is printed out to Genesis chapter 23. A little bit later in the service, we're going to flip back and look at a few places in Genesis 13, 15, and 17. So if you do have a Bible, it might be handy to use that instead of the bulletin. We're in Genesis chapter 23. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today as we come and we hear the Word of God. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, 
Hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. And though the events of people of years long ago seem strange to us and sometimes irrelevant, you, O God, in your wisdom have preserved your word for us, that it is a good word, a useful word, an important word that speaks to us, not just about life back then, about you, the everlasting God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me in spite of my sin and weakness to faithfully proclaim your word, expounding and applying it, and that you would work by your spirit in answer to our prayers to go forth in this word, opening our hearts and minds and ears that we might hear and receive your word, believing it and being led to you, O God. Work in us today that you would strengthen our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're looking at chapter 23 today, we're going to look progressively more closely at what happened. There's what you can see just very clearly on the surface of things, but then we need to zoom in at least two more times into what is going on to magnify, to look deeper in what is happening in the text. And so if you want to think of magnification in terms of your little smartphone pension, or if you want to think about magnification in terms of three different microscopic lenses, we are starting with the the biggest picture and then going deeper to see what's really going on in three steps. So step one, what is most obvious in this chapter is that Sarah has died. Abraham's wife has died. And though she lived to be 127 years old, her death still causes Abraham to grieve. That's what verse 2 tells us. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now we can learn two very quick, simple lessons from this. First, it does not matter how long someone lives, we still mourn when they die. And so, yes, we might look at someone who's 127 and be like, what? I mean... It's time, isn't it? You're still sad when they're gone. Abraham is certainly sad. They were probably one of a very few number of couples that made it to celebrate their 90th wedding anniversary, which that is impressive. 
But no matter how old we are, death still hurts when we are torn apart from those we love. So we learn that. The second simple thing we learn here is that Abraham is not immune from grief because he is a friend of God. That even though Abraham is richly blessed by God and trusted in the Lord, he still suffers loss. And we all, even God's people, suffer this consequence of sin. We all suffer death, our own deaths, and when our loved ones die as well, and we mourn for them. Now, for those of you who are a little worried about me, yes, I knew I was preaching this text on the first Mother's Day after my mom died. I figured, let's just lean in, you know, let's just go for it instead of avoid it. But what we see here is certainly the death of someone you love. The death of someone that causes you great grief. But we see immediately, starting in verse 3, that there is no time to grieve. That there are very practical concerns. And as anyone who's been through the death of a loved one, you know that there are practical concerns that come about right away. Abraham has to figure out, what do we do with Sarah's body? Where will we bury her body? In what kind of casket? Wearing what kind of clothes? With what kind of personal effects? When will we hold the service? Who will speak at the service? All of these practical matters occupy their thoughts in these early days of grief. And the issue for Abraham was we got to find where to bury Sarah. And that was a big problem for Abraham because he was a sojourner, a nomad. That means he didn't own any property. He just wandered around kind of living on other people's property as long as they would let him. So he didn't have any land where he could bury Sarah. And he wasn't going to just carry her body around everywhere. And cremation did not seem to be a normal practice for God's people back then. To make matters worse, there were not public cemeteries as we know them today, where he could just go and have Sarah buried. That people typically back then buried their dead in their own land. And so Abraham needs to talk to the people of the land about where he can bury his wife. They are the rightful owners of the land, and so he must find some piece of land where he can bury her. But notice that if Abraham's concern was only practical, then he would just use their land. If his only concern was, I just need to bury my wife, then he would accept their offers to use the choicest of any of their tombs to bury Sarah. That would solve the very practical problem of Sarah has died, where will I bury her? But as we zoom in on the text, we see Abraham is not interested in just using a piece of their land. He wants to possess some of the land as his own. That's what he says in verse 9. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. See, Abraham didn't want to just put Sarah in Ephron's cave. He wanted Ephron's cave as his own property. And so Ephron kindly offers, "Ah, I will just give you the cave and the surrounding field. It's a gift. But Abraham isn't taking it. That does not satisfy him. He wants to purchase the land. This may seem kind of weird to us, but if you think about it, a gift could be rescinded. 
You could take back your gift. It's, it's bad, but you, people do it. Or gifts can be used as kind of a debt to be repaid later. Hey, I gave that to you. I need something back from you. Abraham doesn't want that. And so like David, in our Old Testament reading from 1 Chronicles, he insists, no, I am purchasing this land for its full price. I want to truly own this piece of land. And so he begins commencing official negotiations at the gate of the city where such matters were decided so that he, in the sight of all of these witnesses, would rightfully own this piece of land. And so they start negotiating. And these are really weird, unfamiliar negotiations to us. Because Abraham just walks up and is like, I want that one. There's no for sale sign on Ephron's cave. It's Ephron's cave. And Abraham's like, I want it. We, we typically wait for something to go on sale. We don't just offer money for stuff that is not for sale. And then Ephron, after being told this, is like, okay, you can have it as a gift because you're so great. That also typically doesn't happen. And then Abraham says, no, no, no. I will pay for it all. We don't do that either. And so then Ephron responds by saying, oh, buddy old pal, like what's 400 shekels of silver between good friends like us? And Abraham rightly interprets that as, I need to give him 400 shekels of silver. That's his way of stating the price that he would accept for this piece of land that was not for sale. Again, very weird to us. And this price, 400 shekels of silver, seems a little steep. It's hard to tell because it seems like the value of a shekel changed over time. That's why it emphasizes according to the weights and measurements there in that city. But 400 shekels seems like a lot for a field and a cave. But do you notice what Abraham does? He just pays it. There's no negotiating. And that's really strange. Providentially, the Lord gave my brothers and I an opportunity last night to engage in modern real estate negotiating, which I found super helpful for this sermon because an offer was made on my mom's house. And you know what we did? We counter-offered. And you know what they did? They countered the counter because that's how we do things. Abraham, he's told 400 shekels. Sold. Done. I'll pay it. We don't do that. He's willing to pay this large sum with no question for this piece of land, this cave in this field. Why is he willing to pay this much for a burial plot? Well, some people like to make grand statements when they bury their loved ones. Perhaps the most famous example is the Taj Mahal in India, a burial site for one of the wives of some fancy guy who had a lot of money. And so they did that. But if you notice, Abraham is not making plans for a big statue or monument he just wants the land. Because Abraham, though he does things in the ancient way, he at least understands our modern principles of negotiation, which means we value above all else location, location, location. Abraham was not looking for a fancy tomb. He was looking for a tomb in the right place. A tomb in the promised land. That's what he wanted to purchase. What matters most to Abraham is that he will bury his wife within the promised land. That God had promised him, one day, your descendants will possess all of this land. 
You don't possess it yet, but you will. Eventually, this will belong to your family. And so Abraham purchased this property in faith, trusting that God would eventually keep his promise. Now, this is not a Hagar situation where Abraham acted immorally to try to get God's promise sooner. He is doing nothing immoral here, and he is only purchasing what he needs at this moment to bury a body. He goes on sojourning in faith. He is not trying to get the land sooner than God can give it. But he wants this peace. But we're still left looking at this passage wondering... Why does he so badly want to bury Sarah in the promised land? Who cares if Sarah is buried in this land? Did he want future generations to be able to visit her grave? To pay their respects to the forefathers and foremothers? Did he want a memorial? Here lies Abraham and Sarah. They were old. Like, what what did he want? Why does it matter if Sarah's body is in the land if she's dead and she never received the fulfillment of what God had promised? And to answer those questions, we have to zoom in even further and zoom into the heart and mind of Abraham and try to figure out what's this old guy up to? What is he doing in this chapter? And what he seems to be doing is applying some of his logic from chapter 22 to his situation in chapter 23. Last week in chapter 22, we saw that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. There was a problem, though. God had also promised that Isaac would be the heir of all the covenant promises. And through Isaac, Abraham would have lots and lots of descendants. But Isaac was a boy, didn't have a single descendant at that point. And so he was left with this very obvious contradiction. God is commanding something, killing Isaac, that will cancel God's promise, Isaac having lots of descendants. And it seemed like a very bad situation where there was a contradiction unless God's promises were stronger than death. And that's exactly what Abraham believed last week. And so he sacrificed, or he prepared to sacrifice Isaac, trusting that God would be able even to raise him from the dead to keep the promises in his word. Abraham did not see death as an obstacle of God keeping his word. And if that's what he believed regarding the offspring... It stands to reason that's what he believes regarding the land. That death would not be an obstacle to God keeping his promise about the land. But what exactly was the promise that God made to Abraham? Well, three previous times in Genesis, we're going to look at them, three previous times God made a promise about the land to Abraham. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip back to chapter 13 in Genesis. At the end of chapter 13, in verses 14 through 15, this is when Lot had gone his own way and God speaks to Abraham. 
The Lord says in Genesis 13, verse 14 and 15, Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Singular and plural. Then Genesis 15, 7, just another chapter or two later. So Genesis 15, 7. This is after we read that Abraham believed God. And then in verse 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, singular. We have trouble with this in English because we like you is both singular and plural, unless you say y'all or yins, but we don't put that in the Bible. And then in chapter 17, verse 8, this is around the time when the, God is giving him the commandment of circumcision. Chapter 17, verse 8, God says to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. So hear what that's saying. God doesn't just promise, I'm going to give your descendants this land. He specifies, I am giving it to you and to your descendants. That you shall possess this land, so will your descendants. But Abraham doesn't yet possess it. In fact, God had told him, you're not going to possess it before you die. That's what he says in chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Chapter 15, God tells Abraham this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's going to be this 400-year gap before they possess the land. So it says his offspring will be sojourners, and Abraham will die and be buried in an old age. His offspring will not possess the land anytime soon. And so Abraham has these two truths that seem contradictory. You're old and about to die. You're also going to possess the land. But he's not going to possess it. No one in his family is going to possess it for 400 years. How can I hold these things together? They seem to contradict. How can I possess the land if I have died? They cancel each other out. Unless God's promises are stronger than death. And that's what Abraham believed in chapter 22. And that's what he believes here. See, our New Testament reading from Hebrews 11 describes how Abraham was looking forward to a heavenly kingdom. He looked forward to a new creation when heaven and earth would meet and all of creation would be renewed. He looked forward beyond his death to the resurrection of the dead when he would finally possess this promised land. And it was in that hope 
that Abraham buried Sarah in the land. His eyes were fixed beyond death on a day when God would keep his promise, showing his promise was stronger than death. But for the time being, he can't see it. He could only see this cave where he buried his beloved wife. Yes, the cave and the field belonged to him, but those few acres of land were nowhere near what he needed for his household and his livestock to live on. He could not live on that plot of land that belonged to him, and he would go the rest of his life being a nomad, sojourning in a land that was not yet his, but one day would be. And to all those Hittites sitting at the city gate, they're probably thinking, man, we pulled one over on that guy. 400 shekels of silver. He's not even going to use the land. We could probably like just keep on using it. This is great. Why would a nomad spend money on a plot of land he's not going to stay on? Why would he care about such things and invest in such things? What's his deal? This is how we are called to live as Christians today. Not as the scoffing Hittites, but as the weird Abraham. We are called to live with eyes of faith, seeking first the kingdom of God. For are we not also foreigners and sojourners here on earth, awaiting the promises of God and their fulfillment? And so one pastor encourages us to ask ourselves this, would anyone look at your life and say that surely they must be living for a future they cannot see? Or would they conclude, no, that person's pretty much the same as everyone else? Are we living for this world? Or are we living with eyes fixed in faith, trusting God's promises about both this world and our future? And to magnify this a little bit more, we need to then turn the magnifying glass on us, asking two specific questions about ourselves and how we live. First, how do we view death? Death is one of the most uncomfortable subjects in our world, and we try our best to avoid thinking about death. And yet, it may be the most important subject in all the world, because all of our lives end in death. So how are we going to think about it? How do we deal with our own mortality? How do we deal with the deaths of the people we love? I know I've spent a lot of the last four months thinking about death and dealing with my grief, Seeing how much death hurts, how permanent loss can feel, how the sadness sneaks up on you, and how things just feel empty. They feel wrong. But with eyes of faith, you can see the death of believers with hope, knowing that they are with the Lord now. And though this loss feels permanent, it is only temporary. And though we may be apart for a brief time, we will be together for eternity. And that is not true simply because we want it to be. It is true because God's promises are stronger than death. And those promises are found not in the cave at Machpelah, but in a different tomb, another cave. For when Jesus was dead and was laid in the tomb, he did not remain dead. On the third day, he was resurrected to new life, showing us that his grave was only temporary. Just as Sarah's grave will only be temporary. Just as ours who believe in Jesus will only be temporary. Is that 
how we, as God's people, view death? Can people see that in us? The second specific question then is to ask, okay, if that's how we view death, how do we view the things of this world? Notice that Abraham is willing to spend excessive money on something that was not of use to him now. He invested in a future he could not see in a way that people probably thought was foolish and strange. How do we view the things of this world? How do we see the things that we so often invest in and spend on? Now, yes, I know we have needs in this world, but so many of us invest ourselves in this world, making this our home and thinking of it as our ultimate home. I love how one author describes our life here on earth as living in a hotel. If we were to go stay in a hotel, I can guarantee none of us would spend time decorating that room. Okay? We would not make changes in that room. We would not buy a new comforter for that room. We would not do things in that room because we would recognize we are not here for long. It is temporary. And compared to eternity with God and the new creation, this world is our hotel. And we need that sojourner mindset like Abraham had to fix our eyes on our heavenly home and invest our time and resources in that way. Is that what we are doing? Are we preparing ourselves for the age to come by gathering for worship with the people of God? Gathering to know what it is like to be among the people of God and the praise of God, for that is what it is going to be like. It's a kind of preparation, just as you might, before you go visit a foreign country, learn about that culture and learn the language. Worshiping weekly is our reminder that we are going someplace different than this world. And let's get used to this different. How do we view our resources? Do we view them to build our own place in this world or to invest and give generously to others that they might come to know the place that we are going? How do we view this world? See, this passage, on the face of it, very much looks like a story about death and burial and the grave. And yet, this passage that seems to be all about those things is actually about the resurrection and the new creation. One pastor I know preached this on Easter. It's a very strange Easter sermon, the burial and death of Sarah. And yet it testifies to that hope we have in death. That we think differently about death and differently about life in this world because of Jesus and all of God's promises in Him that have been given to us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for the gift that You have given to us of hope and promises. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live strangely in the eyes of this world because we are so firmly fixed in our faith of the life to come. Help us to see that we all die, but in Christ we can live forever in the kingdom that is to come. Lord, help us to see that hope, to not be led to despair and death, to not spend our times in love with this world but instead to be witnesses, faithful and bold and loving witnesses for the good news of Jesus Christ to give hope to all those in this world who need hope in death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.